We begin a short two-sermon series today on the book of Jude. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to find the book of Jude in your copy of God's Word, and it's really quite easy. Go to Revelation or Maps in the back and, you know, look at Revelation chapter 1 and Jude is across the page. Revelation chapter uh, 1, or excuse me, Jude is just 25 verses, so it's about one page on your outlines and uh, are in your Bible for you to find. So Jude is one chapter. Jude has been referred to as the least known and the most neglected book in the New Testament. And it may be because we don't know a lot about Jude itself. There's not a lot in the book and a lot a lot outside of the book to tell us. And uh, we're going to take it in two sermons, this warning of judgment this week and next week, we're going to talk about reminders of grace. So Even the warning of judgment is grace, but certainly we see grace in the end of the book of Jude. It's terse, it's picturesque, it's poetic, it's written in triplet fashion, and you may say Jude has kind of a harsh view of things. The other thing that if you look at it or your Bible has footnotes or if you're well read and I'm about to tell you where to read you'll see that Jude is almost identical and parallel to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. So, of course, there's a lot of debate. Who came first? Was it Jude that wrote first? And then, uh, not 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, that Peter borrowed from Jude because he liked the way he said it. They might have been writing to a common audience or they had a common problem. Or was it Peter that wrote first and then Jude borrowed some of what Peter said, well, all of it, and you'll see those similarities if you read them. Now, what Jude is writing about is heresy, false teachers, specifically Gnosticism. Remember, Gnosticism is um, an extra knowledge, gnosis, where we get our word knowledge from, in that there were those that came after the churches were established that Jude is writing to, or after the Christians trusted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, and they said, there's something more you need to do, or there's something less you need to do. In this case, it was something less. There's two brands of Gnosticism. There is the ascetic Gnosticism. Ascetic meaning uh, they're Uh, more strict about things. You've got to follow all these rules and you've got to follow them just in a certain rule. So that brand of Gnosticism tends to add to the gospel and add to the Bible. Then there's this other brand of Gnosticism on the opposite side. And you want to say, why are they both called Gnosticism? Well, because you've got to have this extra knowledge. But that is a libertine, not libertarian, but libertine type of Gnosticism. And the libertine says, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to follow all these rules. Matter of fact, just do it this way and this way and this way. And they came and changed what those who had preached and established the churches, led folks to Jesus, changed what they taught. The thing we need to keep in mind is anytime someone adds to the gospel and the Bible teachings, anytime someone takes away from the gospel and the teachings of the Bible, then we know we're into heresy. And what we see Jude is confronting is heresy. The truth of the Bible is timeless. But there's our profession and our practice, our creed, our conduct, our orthodoxy, our orthopraxy, how we practice that, our doctrinal belief and our ethical behavior should match up. That sound doctrine, as we learned about in 2 
Timothy should find its way out in our sound life and how we live. So we come to the book of Jude, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand and stand with me as we read in honor of reading God's Word and read Jude chapter 1. Actually, it's not chapter 1, excuse me, Jude verse 1 through verse 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy and peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, though I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted all or once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, and these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, rejecting authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring slanderous accusations against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do not understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that would destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed in the prophet of Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming their waves, wandering stars for, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever." Verse 14, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly ways and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They boast or they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Whew. We need to pray. Terse and picturesque may be slight words to use in description of what Jude has to say about these Gnostic heretics that have come against the church that he is writing to. But Father, we come before you this morning with all these words and images in our mind as I've just read through them and we've thought through them. And our prayer is, okay, how am I going to understand this and what does it mean to me? What does it mean to our church? What does it mean to our nation? So God, our Father, we pray you teach us not a history lesson, not the difference between orthodoxy and heresy, 
but that you teach us and speak to our own hearts and our own minds so that we would know how we need to live differently based on what Jude wrote to the church so many years ago. God, we thank you. You'll speak to us by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. Was to contend for orthodox faith, to oppose heresy, to help us stand on the gospel as taught by Jesus and the apostles and those that wrote in the Bible books that we have called the New Testament. And you start with a question on your outline, and that first question is, what's the purpose of Jude? Jude verses 1 through 4 gets us that direction. What's the purpose of Jude? So going back by means of review, you see he says, introduces himself as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Interesting fact. What James is he referring to? There are six different Judes referred to by name in the New Testament. As far as we know, there are six different individuals, but only one of them is the brother of James. And that James is James who... The book of James is named after who wrote that book, and that James is the half-brother of Jesus. So if Jude is the brother of James, what does that make him? The half-brother of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. If I wrote a book, I might say, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother, man. We were buds. Let me tell you some stories about when we grow up. That guy was really something else. Not Jude. He comes at it with humility and he introduces himself as the half-brother of James. Church history tells us that James and Jude, although they were missionaries and very zealous in sharing the gospel and preaching orthodoxy and growing and helping churches, that they never wanted to be known as Jesus' brother. They wanted to be known as followers or disciples of Jesus. And so even in the way he introduces himself in his own book, he says, I'm the brother of James. And he says he's writing to those who are called and who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. What amazing pictures of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that you are called to salvation, that God by his grace wooed you unto him. And that you are loved by God the Father. That God so loved the world that He sent His Son, Jesus. And that you are kept, held tight by Jesus. What amazing pictures of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be saved, called, loved, kept. And Jude doesn't say what church he's writing to. What group of Christians he's writing to, that's something we don't know about Jude. There's conjecture about that, but we can go on what we do know. Then verse 2. Verse 2, you get this trifecta of Christian grace. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. You might say, well, that sounds a little trite. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. But think about how profound, how loaded each one of those words are when you're talking to a follower of Jesus who is called, loved, and kept. Mercy, peace, and love. It's a shorthand way to say a whole lot. Many times I'll sign my notes, love and prayers. And I sign that because I learned it from my dad. But I know when my dad first started writing me letters, when I went away to college, I I went away to college only two hours from my house, but back in those days, you had to write letters, right? And mom and dad would write me real letters. And if I was lucky, sometimes mom would send cookies too. Um, Oatmeal, butterscotch chip, just to be specific. And when dad would write the signature to his letter, he would write love and prayers. And that part always made me cry. And it tears me up even now because I know how my daddy loves me. 
and how my daddy prays for me. When Jude writes mercy, peace, and love, it's that same meaning. There's a depth there that he's calling on from God the Father to those he's writing to. So let's get into what he's writing is the problem he's writing about. He says there in verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. The present participle there says like I was writing it. I was in the act of it. But then he heard a report from or a message from these Christians or this church he's writing to. And he said, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to all saints. When he talks about faith there, he means the gospel, the understanding, the already established principles of the Christian faith. And look at what he says in verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, he's referring back to biblical history, have secretly slipped in among you. The Greek word there, secretly slipped in, the way that's translated, literally means to to plunge in, to dip in. It's uh, almost related to our word baptize, right? But it, it has this idea of you didn't know they were coming. Like, you know, spies or a special operative type people that get in and get out and you don't even know that they were there. And so Jude recognizes this and he's writing these believers and followers of Jesus, and then he goes on to begin to describe them in verse 4. They're godless men who change the grace of God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So he's already named three things about them. We're going to get to that more in a moment. But you see that they're that libertine type of Gnosticism. They're saying, oh, no, you don't have to follow the gospel and the rules. You don't have to follow the laws. We're just going to depend on grace, and you live however you want, sinful lives. So our question for us to apply this is how biblical are my beliefs? Jude is writing a warning of judgment against these heretics and their Gnostic libertine exercising all sorts of liberties with the gospel. What about you and I? If we would ask ourselves, are my beliefs biblical. Well, do I know enough of the Bible to judge this? Or another way to say, okay, of what I know of the Bible, do I live by that? But where did you receive what you know about the Bible? Where did you learn it? Does it sound right? Does it smell right? I used to have a friend that said, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Are there things about something you believe that you say, you know what, here's everything I believe that, you know, from what I can tell, it comes from Scripture, but there's this thing I believe over here that is sort of scriptural. Have you tested it? Have you found if there's any evidence in Scripture to support what you say you believe that you would know if it's biblical and orthodox or if it's heresy and dangerous? Well, we've got that purpose, so let's move along then to the warnings. What are the warnings in Jude? The warnings in Jude, your second major question there, begin in verse 5. He says, though you already know this, I want to remind you what the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt. So he gives three different warnings here. Those that came out in the Exodus, but notice what it says in the end of verse 5, that later destroyed them. In other words, God could have exercised great grace in you, 
But because then you rebelled and sinned against him, he could still destroy you. Now, this isn't losing salvation or anything like that. But he's giving an example. The second example there in verse 6. And the angels who abandoned their position. Remember the angels in the Old Testament that were inflamed with lust when they looked on uh, women here on earth and they said, hey, we're going to take on physical bodies and we're going to go down and have relations with those ladies. Well, those angels had a special kind of judgment. These were those that were called by God, prepared by God, but yet rebelled against God to inflame their own lust. That's a warning that Jude has given. In verse 7 there, those in Sodom and Gomorrah in the way that they gave up natural relations for unnatural relations as the Bible refers to it in their sexual immorality and perversion, the phrase that translated here in my NIV, and they too would suffer judgment. Skip down to verse 11. Verse 11 names three very specific biblical examples. They've taken the way of Cain. Well, what do you know about Cain? That Cain, although he was told how to worship God, did it his own way. Instead of responding in obedience by faith, he decided he was going to make up his own rules. So the heretical teachers that Jude is opposing have done their own thing. We already got that figured out, but that's an example of it. The second phrase there in verse 11, they've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Well, what did Balaam do? Balaam taught what people wanted to hear so he could make some money. Sound like some teachers and preachers today? These teachers of false gospels are alive through every era, and we even have them alive today. And that's what was happening with these that Jude is opposing. They came in and they said, oh, yeah, you do it this way. And by the way, give me an offering to help support me. And look at the third one there in verse 11. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Remember, those men that were involved in Korah's rebellion, instead of following God's grace, instead of doing what they knew was right, they wanted to do it their own way. But God destroyed them in spectacular fashion. You need to read about that in the book of Genesis. So the question here is, which of these warnings gets my attention? That's your application question for your second point. If these are the type warnings that Jude is giving against false teachers, which of them get your attention? Which of them go, whoa, that's a little harsh. That's a little extreme. Why in the world would God do that? Well, God was trying to teach something then as He's trying to teach something now. They're graphic. They're alarming. They may offend our sensibilities, but they were God at work trying to protect orthodoxy, but trying to protect those who were His followers to follow Him. So let's move to our third point on your outline. We've talked about the purpose of the warnings here. We've talked about who uh, those people are, but we're going to get a little deeper into that. Who's the problem in Jude? Who's the problem in Jude? We've had some descriptions of those folks already. Go back to verse 4. It said that they are godless men, change the grace of God into license for immorality, so they're licentious, and deny Jesus as Savior. So you've got three things there in verse 4. Look on down to verse 8. Verse 8 describes them further. In the same way, these dreamers, 
Now, we don't know if they're called dreamers because they've sinned first and then they said, oh, yeah, this sounds good, and then they made up false doctrines to follow, or they made up false doctrines and then uh, did it one way or the other. It's a chicken and egg thing. These dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, slander celestial beings, and you have a description of that and uh, of a dealing with the archangel Michael, and uh, yeah, in other words, Rather than respecting an angel to have authority over them, they rejected the angel. So they were so libertine, so heretical, that they didn't want to have anything to do with any type of spiritual authority. And Jude warns that this is dangerous. And he gives an example that even uh, Moses didn't do this with Michael, and you shouldn't do it either. Look then, and so they were ungodly folks. The next thing in verse 10, I said that they were unabashed. They speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do not understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these very things are going to destroy them. Verse 11 says, woe to them. And it gives that description of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. So these men, uh, unabashed means not embarrassed, disconcerted, or ashamed. They were out there, man. They were living what they believed no matter what anybody else thought, no matter what the danger to them was. They were uncaring. Uncaring is in the beginning of verse 12 there. There are blemishes at your love feast, eating without the slightest qualms. And here's where we get uncaring from. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Now, the Bible has warnings about shepherds. The Bible tells us, and we know in Titus chapter 1, and we also know in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that what an elder or a pastor should be like. And then James chapter 3 says, not many of you should assume to be teachers because you're going to be held to a different standard of accountability. This afternoon at 2.30, we're convening a uh, pastoral ordination council for Nathan Wakefield. Nathan preached last week and did an amazing job right here. If you didn't see it, watch it, right? Uh, You'll benefit from what Nathan had to teach us. But it's with great sobriety and consideration of a man's character... Also, what a man knows and how he's going to teach that, that we consider ordaining a man to the gospel ministry. Because a man could be dangerous and take advantage of things only for his own benefit and not look after the sheep or those in a congregation like a good shepherd should. The next thing that Jude says about these folks is they're useless. Look at the end of verse 12. They're clouds without rain. Well, a cloud without rain might be pretty, but if you need the rain, it's useless, right? They're trees without fruit that are uprooted, twice dead. If it's a fruit tree and you expect it to produce fruit for you to eat, it's useless. And then this uh, last one, they're wild waves of the sea foaming up. In other words, they're not doing anything good for you. They're wandering stars. That's the one I like the best. Stars, if they're fixed because they're a star then you can navigate by them. You can know which way is north, south, east, and west if you've studied those sort of things. And Shoots across the sky, and although you're like, wow, that's cool, look at that, a shooting star, we might call it, it doesn't do you any good except a momentary kind of, ooh, ah. False teachers are the same way. They might tickle your itching ears. You might hear something that sounds good to you, but they're not going to do you any long-term good. They're useless. And finally... The last thing I'd say about these folks, using a term that my wife used from her Louisiana upbringing, is they're ugly. 
Ugly not in the sense that they were physically unattractive, but ugly in the way they acted. Ugly in the way they spoke. Look at what it says there in verse 16. They're grumblers and fault finders. It says they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Sound like some politicians we know, right? And I don't mean that as a compliment. It's kind of scary. The King James says they're murmurers and complainers walking after their own lust. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons and admirations because of advantage. They're trying to say things to people to get them to like them, but they don't really mean it at all. These false teachers were dangerous folks. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, which of these sins do I struggle with? Now, you may not assume to be a teacher, nor a false teacher, or a heretic, or anything like that, but you've got a list of 21 different sins when I counted them. And I'm not going to go back and rename them now, but 21 different sins, and surely there's one, if not five or six, that you would say, yeah, it's a struggle for me, Pastor. Which of those do you need to confess, repent, and turn from, seek accountability for, seek encouragement to overcome, so that you won't fall into these sort of sins? Our fourth and final point, and it serves as a conclusion for us, is what's the coming judgment? Jude lays it out there in verse 14, and he goes back and he uses an example from Scripture, but he also uses the book of Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphal book. If you have a Catholic Bible, you can read it, or just Google book of Enoch. Um, and it's pseudepigraphal because it's not considered inspired, but it is still used as biblical history. So, He explains this situation as an example in verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about men like these. See, they're coming and they're going to corrupt people, he says there, and they're going to use all sorts of ungodly sinners that have spoken against him. It's interesting when you read that, that in verse 15 and 16, there's two words that are used four times each, all and ungodly, all and ungodly, all and ungodly, all and ungodly. Jude says... They were prophesied about, they're here today, beware of these false teachers. So your final question, by means of application, is how must I respond today? If we look at Jude, and we look in our world, and we consider our own hearts and sinfulness, how do I need to respond individually? You could just say, well, those false teachers in Jude were bad. Or you could say, false teachers today are bad. But are you going to shine the mirror of Scripture in your own life and say, there's some things about me that's bad and sinful that I need to confess, lest I be subject to the type of judgment that Jude is prophesying? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us. And even though it is sobering to hear what Jude says and the type language that Jude uses, and although we know it is about those who teach heresy or false gospel in the church, we see some of that sinfulness and selfishness in each and every one of us. 
So God, may we be humble before you, confess freely to you, repent and turn quickly to follow you, that we might live a life that pleases you. And God, it's our prayer that if anyone is here that has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would make that decision too. That in the preaching of the gospel, with convicting of your Holy Spirit, they would say yes to become a follower of Jesus today. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.